We begin a new uh, series of messages today in Genesis 1 through 11 that we've titled Beginnings of Good and Evil, Life and Death, Sin and Salvation. Um, you might want to ask the question, why this series? And the answer is because of the many questions that are raised and answered in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Let me give you some of the questions that Genesis 1 through 11 uh, addresses. So, where did we come from? Uh, why is there something rather than nothing? What should we think about environmentalism? Who are we as human beings? How are we the same as animals? And how are we different? Uh, what is the nature of human beings as male and female? Uh, how do male and female relate? What is marriage and how do we form families? Why is there so much wrong in the world? And why must God judge sin? Why can't we have world peace? All of those questions and more are addressed here in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first 25 verses of Genesis chapter 1, the first page of your Bible. And in it, we're going to discover three things, the need for humility the appeal of the Word of God about the question of origins, and thirdly, the joy that is found in worshiping a Creator God. The joy that's there. Humility, the Word, joy. You got it? Open your Bibles to Genesis 1, verses 1 through 25. Let's stand for the reading of Scripture this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, <clears throat> plants yielding seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, 
the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Please have a seat. This morning I want to begin with a plea for humility before the subject that is in front of us a plea for humility. There is such a thing as the divided world of the materialist and the Christian. There's an either-or here of, of one kind. Either all that exists is the product of an infinite personal God. That means, by the way, that history is not uniform and that God from time to time has interrupted in massive ways in the flow of events. The flood and the cross are two such events. Or, it's either that, or all that exists is the product of time plus chance. That also means what is called uniformitarianism. That means that all things are proceeding as they always have, without interruption, uh, with the possible exceptions of what I believe paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould called punctuated equilibrium. In the end, we're left with either a God who made everything or what uh, Carl Sagan said and later appeared in the Bernstein Bears Nature Guide, uh, nature is all that is or was or ever will be. Those are your two kind of big options when we think about the either or of creation. However, there are also some not-so-either-ors in various attempts to explain creation. Uh, In some cases, the explanations that are being made of Genesis 1 by real Bible-believing Christians who sincerely hold to the authority of Scripture, what they're but they would not take what we would call a literal view of Genesis chapter 1. One way in which they're attempting this is to say that Genesis 1 is not intending to answer the questions that we're asking. So, for example, 
uh, Professor John Walton of Wheaton College has the idea that Genesis chapter 1 is not describing how the universe came into existence, but how the, all that exists is, was prepared as a temple for God to inhabit. In most cases, these attempts to um, be able to connect Genesis 1 with something other than the creation of the material universe or in some way conform to uh, contemporary evolutionary theory, they are really efforts to smooth out the obvious differences of six-day creationism and the theory of evolution. That is, they are attempting to hold to the authority of the Bible while at the same time affirming at least some of the conclusions of evolutionary theory. Now, I'm going to describe some of those ideas in just a moment. For now, though, let's just take a deep breath and exercise a bit of humility. None of us were there, and it can't be reproduced. So we need to have some humility there. All of us, I think every one of us, are going to be surprised when we get to glory by how the world as we know it began. We're going to be, whoa, didn't know about that. And we're also going to be a bit surprised when we discover the wor how the world as we know it ends. Both of those, we're going to see some surprises. The precise mechanics of how the world began and how it will end are a bit of a mystery. And we should be humble enough to acknowledge that. I'm a bit put off by the certainties of some creationist ministries, as well as some who favor their view that alters from that. The certainties of these things, when we ought to exercise, in my judgment, greater humility. It's a subject that is so grand, it is impossible to presume that we have the market cornered on knowledge. Now, with that in mind, let's think about some of these various theories of Genesis 1 and what is being attempted by these theories. These ideas are designed, as I mentioned, to hold on to the authority of Scripture and at the same time hold on to uh, a, a general idea of evolution. And by the way, I'm going to use the word theory here, and I understand I'm going to be using it in a non-technical sense. Generally, that word in science means more than some speculative hypothesis. But it seems that, to me, more is lost than is gained in communication by trying to avoid the word, so I'm not going to avoid it. Here's some of these ideas. The gap theory. That's the idea that there's a gap between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2 and that Genesis 1.3 represents a reconstruction of the heavens and the earth, a recreation, if you will. There's a lot of problems with this one, but the worst one in my judgment is it doesn't fit the Hebrew construction of the word and that introduces verse 2 which, by the way, is not translated in the version that I read you this morning, the English Standard Version. 
but it seems that it doesn't connect. Then there's a day-age theory, which says that each of the days represent ages or spans of undeterminate time. And there's several problems with this. The order of the days is all wrong if we're trying to fit it into an evolutionary model. And the word day with the numerical adjective, you know, one, two, three, and so on, the word day appears 2,300 times in the Bible, and every time else other than Genesis 1, it's with a literal day in mind. So, a little bit of a problem there. And then God defined the term day in this text by using the words evening and morning, light and darkness. A third view is what's called a revelatory view. These are the days in which God's creative processes were revealed to Moses. In other words, Genesis 1 isn't a description of what happened. It's a description of each day God revealed a different thing to Moses. It doesn't pass the plain sense of the text. And it doesn't say, and God said to Moses. It says, and God said... And then it's flatly denied by other scriptures. For example, Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here's a few more. There's a local theory by a Trinity Seminary professor, John Salehammer, that the entire account here in Genesis 1 is about the local world of the land of Israel not about the earth. Uh, So when the word that's translated here, land or earth, it's about the land or earth of Israel. Uh, Seems to me it's contradicted by the scripture that I just read, and the text seems much more universal than a local description. Then, oops, let me back up. Then there is that temple theory of John Walton that what's described is not the creation of the material world, but the framing of a functional world. And all of this is to create a temple for God to inhabit. Um, By the way, this view accepts uh, that each day must be a a 24-hour period of time, but Walton suggests that this has nothing to do with the question of origins. And I will grant that there may indeed be a temple idea here in this text, but it's not the only idea, and I don't believe even the main one. The evidence for this idea comes from other texts in the ancient Near East, from Babylon and Egypt. But those same texts that Walton advocates for, he selectively does so, and those same texts reveal significant differences and they do not do what Walton says they do. He suggests that the ancient Near Eastern people were not concerned with origins as well as functions, and it's flatly untrue. They were. And then there's a poetry theory. That is that the entire account here is a poetic description of God's work, and it is not meant in any literal sense to be a revelation of how God made things. Well, the problem with that is that Genesis 1 here is not poetry, and even if it were poetry, it does not give poetic, that doesn't give poetic license to write erroneous things. And finally, the poetry of the Bible, like the verses we read at the beginning of our service from Psalm 148, or especially from Psalm 33, affirms a more literal understanding of Genesis 1. All of these 
I grant are offered by people who are sincere and believers in Jesus, and we ought to acknowledge with humility that there can be a significant difference between people who are believers in Christ. That's why the plea for humility. But I want to share with you why it is that I'm a six-day creationist. And the answer to that is not found here in Genesis chapter 1. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, which is the fourth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11. There's this introduction of remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you work, the seventh day is a Sabbath, and then it tells about don't do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, female servant, livestock, the sojourner within your gates. And then in verse 11, it gives the reason why we have this rhythm of a week in which we work six days and we rest on the seventh. Um, here, before I get into verse 11, let me just share with you that every other unit of time that we have, so far as I know, is measured by some astronomical uh, feature. So, for example, the day comes from the amount of time that it takes for the earth to rotate. Uh, the year is the amount of time that it takes for the earth to go around the sun once. The month is the amount of time that it takes for the moon to get around the earth. So, then all the other units of time, like hours and minutes or seconds, are subdivisions of those astronomical units, except for one, the week. Where does the week come from? It does not come from astronomical phenomena. It's unique. The week is unique. Somebody can do a rap on that. Not me. Um, it's a unique feature. In fact, I believe that during the French Revolution, because they wanted to get rid of God, they got rid of the week and tried to do a 10-day week. Failed miserably. Why do we have the week? Verse 11 gives the answer for why Israel should keep the Sabbath day. For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. It's, it's expansive. It's universal. Heaven, earth, sea, everything in them. And rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Centuries ago, the debate over how much time it took for God to create the world and everything in it was raging. But it wasn't raging over is it millions and billions of years of time or is it six days? The battle, the theological battle was, was it six literal days or there were people that were saying that view is insulting of the power of God. God couldn't have taken six days. He just had it happen all at once. That was the debate that was going on centuries ago. And Martin Luther, in his typically acerbic way, 
gave this answer to that debate. I have often said that whoever would study Holy Scripture should be sure to see to it that he stays with the simple words as long as he can and by no means depart from them unless an article of faith compels him to understand them differently. For of this we may be certain, no simpler speech has been heard on earth than what God has spoken. Uh, Therefore, when Moses writes that God created the heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this remain six days and do not venture to devise any comment that six days were one day. You see, he's battling the other direction, right? But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you should deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself is saying what is recorded. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you wantonly to turn his word in the direction you wish to go. Again, words that humble us, don't they? A plea for humility. This doesn't mean that I don't have questions regarding how, the science, how science and the Bible can be harmonized. But the point is, is that, that we need to make is that every idea of origins, every one of them has problems. Every one of them has challenges. The most important question we bring to any field of study is first, what does the Bible say? And the follow-up question is also important. Which one idea of origins best makes sense of both the biblical data and the observational data of the world around us? Now, there's a reason why we live with unanswered questions, and it has to do with the nature of science. Now, it's, it's, it got left on the cutting room floor today. You'll have to ask me sometime. But If you study dictionaries from 1828 onward, you will see a very subtle change in the definition of the word science. It's a fascinating thing. You should check it out sometime. But for today, what I want to do is talk about science as a, the the science of a historical event. It's not reproducible. We can't go back in time. We don't know the boundary conditions. And we also have difficulty in our use of the word science. Let me share with you three ways in which the word science is used today. And we just move seamlessly between all three of them without thinking that we're using a different, it's it's a whole different concept, a whole different idea altogether. Let, Let me share these three. First, science is confirmed facts. For example, the speed of light in a vacuum. It's a confirmed fact. You don't have to debate that. Then there's such things as science that's called empirical data. For example, my wife has just been through, and you've prayed so marvelously for her through this breast cancer diagnosis. Uh, She had her tumor analyzed for 21 different genes in order to determine whether or not there would be any chemotherapy that would be helpful for being able to prevent future episodes of tumors arising in her body. And also to determine which, if there was chemotherapy that was uh, to be uh, um, given, which of the many different chemotherapies would be the best one. How do they know those things? Well, 
by what's called empirical data. They study things and they learn and they draw conclusions and they come up with something and they do it and then they figure out, well, that works pretty good, but this might be better and they take a different path and so on. And that's why you will see that once in a while science changes its conclusions, right? And sometimes people disparage science because it's changed some conclusion or other. No, it's just science as empirical data. And if you think of science always as confirmed fact, you're going to have a problem with that. And then there's a third idea of science, which is as a political authority. Let me give you a couple of painful examples in my judgment anyway. You may disagree with me. I, I'm humble. <laughs> um, the idea that because global climate change, which is done by empirical data, that we should therefore tax people who use carbon fuels and use that money to bribe third world leaders not to develop their countries, that's sometimes called science. And that's really an issue of politics, isn't it? It's not about what's confirmed fact or not. And yet, when people say, follow the science, sometimes they're saying, follow my political conclusion. Another painful example is, um, and here's, I'm going to touch probably a sore spot, especially for those of you that are younger, because you've been trained in this in a very, um, very intense way. Recycling. <clears throat> Do you know that almost all of America's recycling goes into landfills or is burned in incinerators? And what does not used to go to China, but they actually refuse our recycling now because it's so contaminated, so we ship it to even lesser developed third world countries for processing. And I didn't get that from some conservative website. It was from the uh, Columbia University in New York City that's lamenting the fact that recycling is just a measure of feel-goodism rather than something that we're really making a difference for. And I'm not saying I'm against recycling. I'm just saying when we say the science of it, it's really a political issue rather than a confirmed fact issue. So, all of that, plea for humility, okay? Let's just be humble. Let's look next at what did God do. And here we're going to dive into some of the specific verses here in Genesis 1. Verse 1, God created out of nothing. He shaped it. He did so by his word. Until God spoke, nothing existed. I love what Derek Kidner says about this. The creator in willing an end willed every smallest means to it, his thought shaping itself exactly to the least cell and atom. God was intimately engaged in creation out of nothing. Now, we're immediately introduced in verse 1 to two realms, aren't we? Heavens and earth. And that the earth is a special place of God's affection. This is quite amazing given what we know about the solar system and the physical universe. How can this little blue dot out there be so important to God? In fact, one reason why we have a Bible-science divide is that we can interpret both Bible and science wrongly. 
It was the right view that the earth was a special place of God's affection that led to a wrong scientific view that the planets and the sun revolved around the earth. Today, the problem is in the other direction. It is the right view that the earth revolves around the sun that can lead to a wrong view that the earth is not a special place. It's just one of many of millions and billions of such places. And certainly it's not special to any God with a little g since he doesn't exist. And believers in that religion say, we'll prove that one day when we find other planets just like ours. And that's why there is such a heavy search for extraterrestrial life. In verse 2, we're introduced to this concept of what the earth was like. It was unformed and unfilled, without form and void. In this world that God has made, He's made material, undifferentiated, unorganized, lifeless. But at the same time, note the care of God in verse 2 as well. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's active in His creation. And the first thing that God did in verse 3 when organizing the material that He made was to turn on the lights. (laughs) Note the precision and swift obedience to God's command. Let there be light. And there was light. I don't need to tell you that light is one of the most amazing and puzzling features of the material universe. We could go the whole rest of the sermon just talking about the amazing nature of light. But we won't. Verses 6 through 8. Day 2, separation of water above and water below. Ancient Near Eastern accounts outside the Bible from Babylon and Egypt and so forth are remarkable in how they differ from this account. In those, there are competing gods which make one part of the natural world war against the other parts. That is, the sky is at war with the sea, which is at war with the earth. Here, there is no competition or rivalry. It's all designed to function together in harmony because of a God who exists. Now, Day three, the two parts of the heavens and earth become three. There's heavens, dry ground earth, and seas. And verses 11 through 13 tell us that vegetation appears. God creates vegetation, which has two general parts to it, plants that yield seed and trees that bear fruit, which all trees do. Some just aren't edible. Then day four, verses 14 through 19 the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, Babylonian cosmology is quite different. The Babylonian poem represents the stars to us as the likeness of the gods and to a certain extent identifies them with the gods, uh, endowing them with personality and mind and will. The Bible, on the contrary, depicts them as material entities created by the word of one God. That's Umberto Casuto, a commentator on Genesis. I want you to pause on three words at the end of verse 16. And the stars. It's one word in Hebrew, etakokavim. And the stars. One word 
and it's We don't even know how many stars there are. There's a hundred billion in our galaxy. The estimate right now is that there are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. My goodness, that's almost as much as our national debt. (laughs) It's limitless, and it's stated in one word in Hebrew, and the stars. Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, look at the stars, who created these, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Day five has verses 20 through 23, birds and fish, things that flock and swarm. And and verses 24 and 25, living creatures on the earth, animals of three kinds, animals that can be domesticated, things that creep around, and wild animals. Now, there are some general observations that we can make about this account in Genesis 1. First, It's created functionally mature. It didn't start out all the animals were little babies or all the stars were young stars. It's created functionally mature. It just, boom, it's there. As though it had been there always. It's just, boom, there, functionally mature. The second thing that I want you to note in general about this chapter is that things reproduce according to its kind. In other words, one thing did not reproduce another kind of thing. We see that repeated in verse 11, 12, 21, 24, and 25. And then there is this remarkable idea that we found in verse 2, where the earth is formless and unfilled, and we will see forming and filling in the days of creation. Look at this order. Day one relates to day four. Day two relates to day five. Day three relates to day six. On day one, God forms light and day. On day four, He fills it with the sun and the moon. On day two, He forms sea and heaven. On day five, He fills it with fish and birds. On day three, he forms the earth, the dry ground, and on day six, he fills it with animals and people. Now, there are all kinds of objections that are raised, and I suppose you have a few of them in your mind today if you are somewhat skeptical of the Genesis 1 account. All of these things are about processes we know nothing or little about. And in fact, the more you dive into something, the more you will discover that you don't know, which is why humility about what we know should be the order of the day. Now, here are some questions that get asked. How can there be day and night before the sun? And the answer is, well, the text says God made it. <laughs> How can there be plants without the sun? Well, if God made the light without the sun, he can make the plants without the sun. What about dinosaurs? 
if the God made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days, then that includes dinosaurs. Was there death before the fall? We'll get to that in a few weeks. What about stars and light years of time? It's created functionally mature. What about cellular biology? If you look at the genome, you would see that it all translates back to a tree that looks very much like an evolutionary tree. And the answer is uh, somewhat complex, and there's lots of things I don't know about it because I'm not a geneticist, but it seems to me that it makes sense that God, that functional maturity is also at work. What about Satan angels and demons made at the same time? My view, okay? When were they created? Same at the same time as the first six days of creation. Now, those are all answers that I'm giving you. I could be wrong. Humility is the order of the day when we deal with these things because there isn't one person's ideas who can come up and say, I've got it squared away every detail. So, where we should go is to joy. Joy about what God did. Let's think about all the reasons for joy that's found here in Genesis chapter 1. And here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relate this to some other scriptures. First, the joy is, if we accept God's creation account, it means that we will accept Jesus. Now you go, wait a minute, how do those connect? Well, Jesus is the one that connected them. Here's what he said in John 5. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, when we accept with joy the words of Moses, that's something that Jesus assumes will be part of accepting his own words. And if we refuse to believe Moses, Jesus does not understand how we will believe him. So there's a joy in accepting the words of Moses because it means that now we're ready to accept the words of Jesus. There's a joy in the certainty of order. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord for all the inhabitants of the world. Stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The joy in the certainty of the order of the universe. The reason why science came into existence is because Christianity brought the idea there's one God who is a God of order, who has sustained and created the universe, and we can know about it. There's joy in the certainty of the forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah 31 is perhaps one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. But it talks about no one will, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each his brother saying, know the Lord. They'll all know me in the new creation. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. A verse picked up by the author of Hebrews. Thus says the Lord. And here's the reason why we can know the forgiveness of sins. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. 
If the heavens above can be measured, the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I'll cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they've done, declares the Lord. In other words, salvation is a certainty because of creation. And then, this is picked up in Jeremiah 33, this same idea only specified even more for the nation of Israel. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says, Lord, if you break my covenant with the day, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. Verse 25, if I've not established my covenant with day and night in the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I'll reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, the joy of the promises of God about the future of Israel in the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament hinges on, at least by the author of Jeremiah and the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, is in creation. There's joy in accepting the words of Moses because it means we can accept the words of Jesus. There's joy in the certainty of order. There is joy in the forgiveness of sin and there is joy in the certainty of the promises of God. All because of creation. There's joy here. Uh, I want to add one more item here. There's joy in the extreme unlikelihood of all that exists being a random event. There should be a joy for us in looking at it and going, this is extremely unlikely that this just so happened, that it just kind of appeared by time plus chance. Nancy Piercy in her book Total Truth notes that one cell, one cell contains more information than 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. But let's not go with the Encyclopedia Britannica, that's just too big. Let's make it simpler than the DNA of a cell. Let's try producing Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, from random monkey typing, okay? Let's further assume that every proton in the universe was a monkey with a typewriter, typing from the Big Bang until the end of the universe. They would need more than 360,000 orders of magnitude longer than that to have even a 1 in 10 to the 500th chance of success of producing Hamlet. To put it another way, to get a one in a trillion chance of success, there would need to be 10 followed by 360,641 observable universes of proton monkeys typing away in order to come up with Hamlet, which is way less complex than one cell. Well, let's make it even simpler than the DNA of a single cell or of producing Hamlet. What's the probability of a monkey typing Genesis 1-1 perfectly? Let's just pick that. Let's assume that the monkey is a really fast typist. He types 12 keys in a second. He never gets tired. He works 24 hours a day. Poor monkey. He, he, he's got a simple typewriter that's all capital letters, no periods, semicolons, any of that. In addition, give him a million monkey helpers. 
So it's a million and one monkeys. Now, there they are typing away. Get a rock 20 trillion miles wide and remove a grain of sand from that rock once every million years. Four rocks that size would be worn away before a million and one monkeys could type Genesis 1-1. I call that unlikely. Infinitesimal. Not possible. Now, people who believe in time plus chance recognize this. So what they do is they say, well, we're going to make infinite universes with infinite monkeys and sooner or later we get us, right? So it's the whole idea of the multiverse, And they want to make monkeys out to be pretty smart. So actually in 2002, there were lecturers and students from the University of Plymouth in England that took a 2,000-pound grant, wonder who gave this money, to study the literary output of real monkeys. Um, By the way, some of you are going to go, that's not a monkey, that's a chimpanzee. Okay, I know. They left a computer keyboard in the enclosure of six macaques at the Pengton Zoo in Devon, England for a month. Not only did the monkeys produce nothing but five total pages, largely consisting of the letter S, the lead male began striking the keyboard with a rock, and other monkeys followed by soiling it. The director of the university's Institute of Digital Arts and Technology said the artist-funded project was primarily performance art and that they had learned, quote, an awful lot, unquote, from it. There's a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness here if we believe that it just all happened. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Is there something that's keeping you from joy, dear friend? It may be that you're just resisting God rather than saying you have some quote-unquote scientific objection to Him. There are three routes. You can say there's no God, which means that there is nothing to worship or thank. It just is, which leads, if there is any worship at all, just to the worship of what is. You can go with multiple gods, competing, which leads to fear. I've lived in nations where people believed that gods were at work in creating the earth and the thunder and all the different things, and they lived in abject fear because the gods are competing and they couldn't appease them all because they contradict. And many today, ironically, are going this route, while at the same time rejecting Christianity on quote-unquote scientific grounds, 
they chase after astrology and the new age and Eastern mysticism and alter your consciousness with drugs or mushrooms and craft your own deity. All of that abounds and Europe is filled with that idea today. And there is no joy. There is only anxiety, which is evidenced in many, many ways. Or you can say there is one God the maker of heaven and earth, who spoke and all that exists has come into existence, and with joy we join together to worship Him. Let us say this together from Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Heavenly Father, please seal these things in our hearts, and where there may be one who is lacking in humility, teach us humility before this remarkable text. Where there are those who doubt the Word of God, Holy Spirit, reveal to them that what is being stated in Scripture is true truth. And then, Lord, Grant to everyone the joy of worship of a creator God who loves us and even now is preparing a home for us with him forever. Now, God, we pray that those who, would not, who do not know Jesus as their Savior would say to him right now, Lord Jesus, Forgive me of my rebellion. Forgive me of my sin. By your precious work at the cross, you shed your blood so that I may be forgiven. Thank you for your love. I trust you with my life and my eternal destiny. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, help us to be winsome, not proud, not boastful, but humbled under a text like this, and filled with joy for the one who made us. In Jesus' name, amen.